The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Good evening and hello if you've downloaded the podcast later on tonight after 11 o'clock. Shipwreck Tale with John McChrystal, which hasn't been heard in a long, 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 long time because it fell overboard in the transfer from one ship to the next in web format. Formats. Um, So we're just playing them and putting them back in as we go. It's the easiest way. If you want me to explain technically, I'm not going to because I don't even know how it works. Anyway, that's what we're doing. The story of the Sydney Cove. Oh, my God. It's the, the shipwreck is just the beginning of their uncomfortable time. It's a massive, massive journey for survival in Australia. Also, later on this evening, or later on this hour, in fact, we have our best-known playwright, easily, Roger Hall. He doesn't hold back. He says a thing or two. Oh, we'll, we'll try and fix theatre in 30 minutes, shall we? Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's rock. I get notifications for mm-hmm. something's on. Would you like to interview this person? Here's mm-hmm. the play. I've got to say about nine out of ten seem to be loaded with a political message. Too much. It's almost as if if you did something that didn't have the words oppression, structural, systemic diversity or something along those lines, yes. that you're not allowed in the group. I think you've hit it. Very well, I think there's a theatre doesn't change uh, attitudes really. If people go along to that sort of show, they're usually the converted already. We don't, who wants to go and be preached at? And you're absolutely right. And it's not a particularly effective way of preaching, anyhow. Yeah. And in itself, it does not make a good play. It might be. There's a lot of snobbishness about. As for the well-made play, sneered at a lot. It's mainly sneered at because people can't write them. A few people, a few of us. <laughs> Roger Hall, later this hour. Next up, very serious subject. Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos usually talks about human stats. He did his master's thesis, <coughs> pardon me, in a, a, a societal study about suicide. And it may be a difficult listen, but it's maybe an important one as well. Good evening. <laughs> This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Jonathan Dodd, Director of Research at Ipsos, one of those companies that asks people what they think about things. Rather a special one this week. I was really shocked and very sad and I think this is my favourite news anchor and a, a nice guy, Greg Boyd, suffering from depression. They said died suddenly. We all join the dots. Jonathan Dodd, one of the first bits of modern social science was about that very subject. Yeah, it's interesting when you um, look into the background of sociology, which sounds all very la-di-da, but sociology is really just about using the scientific method to understand society. Back in the day, the fact that you could actually um, understand people as a social group was quite a radical idea. And to be able to say, you know, actually, People all have similar behaviours or attitudes according to where they live or where they've grown up and all these things that we now take for granted. Well, it's actually really quite amazing news. A uh, French early sociologist, Emile Durkheim, decided to go about proving that you can actually understand what is a personal issue at a social level. He said, OK, there are four psychological states of suicide. 
and he'd go out there to um, investigate um, a couple of them by doing a big analysis of all the suicide trends and so forth in France. That's sort of known as one of the most groundbreaking and influential studies of sociology. It's also now recognised as one of the um, earliest and, and biggest cases of massaging the statistics to prove your, your hypotheses. Because one of the interesting things he found was that in rural areas, suicide rates are lower. And so he said, well, okay, it's because in rural areas, we're all um, living in a lovely communal atmosphere, we've got greater social support. And what's come out after that was really recognising that it's because you're in a rural area with a lot of social connections and, and everybody knows who you are and so forth, that the shame of suicide was one that was so great that it led to the coroner's reports being changed to protect the family's reputation. Yeah. Social presses and social norms were actually influencing what was being recorded. Whether it was really proving what he wanted or the rationale for what he's proving wasn't quite the way he wrote it down. But nonetheless, I think it's really important and still holds true to this day that you can never look at a suicide as a totally isolated phenomenon and everybody is in a wider community. What's your master's thesis about? I mentioned before how he has put forth four different types of suicide. One of them he thought wasn't very common, so it wasn't worth talking about, and that was called fatalistic suicide. You've got no control over your life. It's all predetermined. As an 18th century um, French um, academic was wont to do, his example of such a person would be a young husband trapped in a marriage. I had a look at that, and actually I had a, a theory and a hypothesis that these days, so much of our personal self-worth is bundled up in what we consume and the clothes we wear and the brands we wear and so forth. And we're told that unless you have all these shiny trinkets, you are not as, as good as you could be, that we're setting people up to fail. And it's exacerbated when people realise that they don't even have a show of trying to achieve what society says you should be. You know, you hear about the poverty trap and so forth, and people are told, unless you have all these things, you're a failure. And so I had a look a couple of years worth of coroner's reports looking at the incidence of this, and it's pretty light. You know, you can only read so much into coroner's reports and suicide notes. That would be grim reading of an afternoon, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, and it's ironic. Um, There's a bit of humour involved too, because as a lot of people fail to realise when people commit suicide, while we look from the outside and, and can recognise the tragedy and, and the pain and everything of it, yeah. invariably the person who attempts or commits suicide sees it as a positive. They're solving a problem. It's a positive act that will end all the pain and so forth. Our instant reaction is to say, you're not solving the problem, but we're applying our rational thought processes. You're not in their head, are you? Yeah. In, in their head, they've actually been quite rational. And so when it comes to the act, when I've read suicide notes and listened to transcripts of people recording their last words, they're often in a very calm and, I won't say happy, mm. but a content point of view that it's all about to be over and, and all the other problems that they foresee are about to end. And, you know, if anybody's listening, of course, and, and shouting, at the, you know, of course the problems aren't over, etc. that's the point. If you're in that frame of mind, you're not thinking rationally, yeah. even if you think you are. So it did come through that over time, the greater the, the, the difference between rich and poor, there was a correlation between that and the instance of this type of suicide. I'm going to say a correlation, not a causation, because I didn't get that deep into the maths. Yep. And of course now, that's social media, isn't it? 
everybody's perfect Instagram post and stunning holiday shots on Facebook. It's a two-edged sword, though. We often look at social media, and because of the news that we see about it, it seems like it's an awful thing. But people who would have been previously utterly lonely without like-minded friends because of the social economy of scale of social media, you can find like-minded people and friends for the first time in human history where you might not have been able to before. You are correct, and and it's it's a double-edged sword because the other side is that when you talk to particularly young people, and as we all know, the quantity of friendship doesn't equate to quality. You know, we all laugh when we see celebrities getting married and inviting 300 close friends. And we laugh and then go, hang on, well, when I go 300 friends on Facebook, what does that mean? How many of them will come around and shift your furniture or look after you when, when times are tough? It's interesting when you do see when people are in pain, and I've seen this in cases, they won't say anything on Facebook or social media, or they'll do the old cryptic thing because they want to lash out, but they don't actually want to share. And for all the supposed gains we get, loneliness is only going up and up and up. That's a proven fact, as our social connectivity has gone up as well. It's the quality of the relationships, not the quantity. It's one of those subjects that people have high anxiety even addressing, and there was a school of thought, I don't know where we're standing on this now, I don't know where the science is on the matter, that best not even talk about it. That goes against every instinct that I have. In your introduction, when you said died suddenly, join the dots, I mean, they can't say it was actually a suicide until a coroner's report comes through, so that's the first thing. Right. For a long time, it was that issue, it was the fear of copycat suicide. Mm. If you talk about it, more people will do it. And that's generally been discredited, which is why we now have these conversations. And for everyone who talks about it, hopefully they recognise they're not alone from that space. And it is normal to feel bad. Well, one of those moments where I tried to put myself in somebody else's shoes, the assignment programme on the BBC World Service, mm. it was the last two weeks of a woman's life who was having state-assisted suicide yes. because of her mental health. I had to pull over for a cry, basically, Mm. if not literally. It greyed my day that someone could be in that position where the professionals agreed the best thing is to go out, and they helped her. And the reason, main reason was... She didn't want to do it herself because she didn't want friends to find her. She Mm. didn't want the train driver to feel guilty or have nightmares for the rest of his life. You can join the dots. That's why she wanted to do it. And one of the things she said, every breath I take is torture. Mm. There will be a lot of people listening who will know exactly what that feels like who have actually come out the other side and will be healthier than they were in the past. And when you told me about that, I was I, I was pretty shocked that it could be state-sanctioned. Yeah. Physical euthanasia of a chronic painful illness, absolutely yeah. all in favour of that. But for a state and doctors to say, we agree, there's no solution. Well, how do you feel if you're starting to feel depressed, if, you, if there's proof out there that you may not actually get through it? So how's that for a, a shining light on the horizon in your darkest days to know that actually it might not get better to such an extent that professionals agree you should be dead. Pretty amazed to hear that as a state policy. Although with everything there's a bell curve and those at the edges must suffer so horribly. The professionals say in the vast majority of cases, yes we can. We try bloody hard and Mm. have successes in the majority of cases. But those outliers, they exist. She was one of them. And are we perhaps not appreciating that shall we say, injury that has no physical 
uh, symptoms. It doesn't present in a physical way. They're just as serious as the physical ones that do. Absolutely. And of course, because it looks hidden, it's harder to feel empathetic because if somebody's got a leg that's fallen off, you can you can picture yourself without that leg and how bad it must be. Yeah. But it's hard to think about people in the mental illness because unless you're in it, yeah. you've got no experience of it and you can't look and see that. But you're right, it should be treated as such. There are various schools of thought as to whether you treat it as a physical thing because often there are diagnosable chemical imbalances and that's when drugs often help with depression. So there's as many ways for your, for your mind to go awry as there are for your body yeah. and it's the most complicated machine in the world and in, in the is. universe yeah. why can't it go wrong from time to time hey thank you Jonathan I know it's right. uh, an outlier subject for this piece but um, seeing as to have you had some experience and expertise in social sciences with this uh, good to talk with you about it and at the end Thanks, of these Grant. things people reel off 1500 bloody numbers I think that's a mistake just give one just well, try I lifeline like, yeah. 0800-543-354. Jonathan Thanks, Dodd, thank you very much. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. There's something happening in September, which is obviously like an analogue of New Zealand Music Month, which I think is May. September 1st to the 30th is going to be New Zealand Theatre Month. Exactly. Roger Hall is with us. Probably, oh, I don't think it's even a probable, our best-known playwright. I think it's true. I think it's true too. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, it's It's a great excuse to be able to reel you into the studio to talk about all sorts of things. So under the Marketing Act, 1969... Tell us about New Zealand Theatre Month and why theatre is still important. Theatre Month has been an idea that's been kicking around for quite some time. A group of us got together about three or four years ago to try and set it up, but nobody would agree on anything, basically. (laughs) So we all walked away. The idea of it, I think, was originally Dean Parker's when he wanted to promote New Zealand playwrights. And that's still basically the issue, the, um, the thrust of it. But in fact, New Zealand theatre is so widespread, and, the, and I'm talking about plays written by New Zealanders or you know, in whatever guise. Um, but by and large, the public is not aware of how widespread and how diverse our theatre is. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the theatres seem to be fighting their own corner and there's no national feeling, and there's no national... Way back in the 80s, there was a great excitement, and, and the, all the theatres sort of were together. And when I talk to my Auckland theatre-going friends, they have no idea how much theatre is on in Auckland, yeah. let alone the rest of the country. Uh, they have no idea how many venues we have. They have no idea of all the different genres and, um, you know, Asian theatre, Indian theatre, also it's... Astonishing. Yeah. So the idea is by the end of the month, the, the slogan is to elevate and promote. I haven't, gotten, even, I haven't got that quite right. <laughs> <laughs> the mission statement. Um, to gooder it up. Yes, to get people to be much more aware of it and within the industry, uh, proud of it. Yeah. Good. Um, something along the lines of what you just mentioned about the parochial um, outlook of theatre. 
I've always had a bit of a theatery feeling, uh, very parochial, about Wellington. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? Just just enlarge on that a bit. Um, well, I know what you're they saying. They think they're the centre of theatre in New Zealand. They do. They still think that. And if that's what they want to think, that's fine. Hello, and Wellington. I, you, I, do, you do well. <laughs> you do well, but it's a thing. And I don't mind if they think that. But what's annoying is when they, if if they don't realise how much theatre there is in Auckland, and even more annoying when Aucklanders don't realise how much theatre there is in Auckland. Right. I mean, I've never, I hardly ever see city councils at the theatre. I don't see um, many people. I mean, in the days, you know, it would be nice if the mayor went occasionally. But, I mean, to be fair, if he's not interested, he's not interested. But I don't sense a civic pride in all the plays we do. I think there's a pride in the buildings and what goes on at the Civic and so on, yeah. but I don't see much that much pride in Auckland Theatre Company or Silo or Q Theatre and so on. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but I, I want Aucklanders to be more aware and much prouder of what we have. Mm. And New Zealand playwrights. Yes. Yeah. So that does make it the analogue of uh, New Zealand Music Month because we're talking about New Zealand music yes. writers. Um, okay. It is a high-risk thing. It's high commitment to go and buy a ticket. They're not cheap. That's you get right. locked in a room. Yes. Um, sometimes against your will by Act 3. I agree with you completely. Um, the biggest enemy of theatre is the big flat screen in the corner of our room and Netflix and the winter weather. So why get go out and get in your car and drive, especially for us on the North Shore, across the bridge? and pay 50 bucks for a ticket. And I don't think theatres have recognised that enough. And my big rant here is, so why do they keep putting on plays at 7, 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night instead of doing two shows on Saturday and two shows on Sunday and two mid-morning shows during the week? Mm. Uh, I had a play on in, in the Sydney at the uh, Ensemble, which is on the North Shore. And as I looked in advance of the bookings, I saw they did two shows a week Tuesdays and Thursdays at 11 o'clock. I thought, how stupid. They sold out first. Did they? Because yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. You know, people come into town, they go they have lunch, they shop, they go to the show. Yeah. And nobody's doing it here. It also has the feeling, the imagery, that it is for the well-to-do. Yes. How can we get back to Shakespeare and yelling? Well, um, well, that's partly linked to the price. It's partly linked to tradition. But I think, to be fair, theatres are trying all sorts of ways for getting younger people in, and that's a problem. But it's also true that I'm always quoting my niece, who is uh, in her 30s and is a lawyer. In other words, she, she's educated. She has an income. And she hardly ever goes to theatre, and hardly any of her friends do too. So why are we missing out on all these people? And theatre's got to do something about it. And one thing... Uh, somebody said to her, have you seen Cellfish, C-E-L-L Fish, and you'll like it. So she went and she liked it. And often that's all it takes. Mm. If, so I urge all theatregoers and fans to, if you see a play, tell somebody about it. That's Or better still say, hey, we're going to the th play next week, would you like to join us? Mm. If, if you multiply that across the country, it adds up to a lot of tickets. Yeah. If it's good, the word gets around. The word gets around, I yes. Like Hudson and Halls. It was a must-go-see. Absolutely. What a thing. Absolutely. Well, uh, more recently, Burn Her by Sam Brooks um, sold out on word of mouth. 
Yeah. Terrific show. Loved it. And I think I got the last two tickets. I was a bit slow off the mark. But anyhow, I got there. Mm. All right. Um, oh, we'll, we'll try and fix theatre in 30 minutes, shall we? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's rock. I notice, because I get, I get notifications for mm-hmm. something's on. Would you like to interview this person? Here's mm-hmm. the play. And I've got to say about nine out of ten seem to be loaded with a political message. Too much. Uh, it's almost as if if you did something that didn't have the words oppression, structural, um, s- systemic r- diversity or something along those lines, yes. um, that that you're not allowed in the group. I do. I think you've hit it very well. I think there's a... People, we, we can get tired of it. I mean, we good, do. On, well, why, good you know, on people for being activist, yes, but, but give us a break. Theatre doesn't change uh, attitudes, really. Uh, if, if people go along to that sort of show, they're usually the converted already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm quoting Alison Quigan, who writes plays such as Five Go Barmy in Palmy, and the, somebody, you know, dance at hall or something, and people go along because they know it's not polemic. They're not going to be preached at. They know from the very title and and of course, Alison writing it. It's going to be a great evening's entertainment. We don't, who wants to go and be preached at? And there's, you're absolutely right. It's um, and it's not a particularly effective way of preaching, anyhow. Yeah. So it seems, and in itself, it does not make a good play. It might be. Similarly, if it might be a light comedy, but it can be a very good play. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of snobbishness about content. And as for the well-made play, sneered at a lot. It's mainly sneered at because people can't write them. Right. Except a few people, a few of us. Yeah. <laughs> so, so modestly. Well, it's true, you know, people, yeah. the well-made play, one of it, it says, you know, it has a very good story, it has very good characters, mm. and there's a very good structure. These are all hard things to achieve, but audiences love them and ignore that at your peril. Right. All right. Enough about you. Okay. <laughs> you came to New Zealand. Uh, you you did a lot of growing up in the UK, didn't you? I came when I was 19. Right. That's pretty formative, isn't it? And you, and you knew you wanted to be a writer slash playwright screenwriter? No. Um, because of the class system, well, part of me did. But because I was a sort of middle class boy, I felt that was just not for me. It's not the sort of thing we did. I, my father was in insurance, and my first working job was was an insurance company. And I, <clears throat> until I went to New Zealand, I assumed that was going to be my career. I wasn't particularly happy about it, but I wasn't particularly sad about it. Where did you get the writing bug then? Ah, well, my parents were great theatre lovers, and I went, to, and they took me to the pantomime, and uh, we went to theatre a lot. We went to the theatre more than we went to the movies, so it, that that was there. But coming to New Zealand, and. Uh, a, in, so 1958, there was no television. Gasp horror. What do you do in the evenings, I thought. <laughs> well, one of the things I did in the evening was to join an amateur you know, a, a drama group oh. and got on stage and found I, wasn't, I was not quite good at it, actually. And then the um, second big thing, went back to England, came back to New Zealand at the age of 23 and went to teacher's college. And they made me go to university. And the teacher's college lecturers said, well, we can't turn you into teachers we've got you we've got you for two years but we'll make you more interesting people and so any sort of artistic signs you had they encouraged so i began to write regularly um anything really poetry short stories articles comedy when you trace back like an evolutionary tree uh writers actors especially comedy yes um 
you can almost find at the root of it a university review somewhere. Yeah, that's true. And in America, the same. Yeah. Um, Neil Simon, or, or, or you know, they did, they did either stand up or sketch. Sketch material was the, the, the great learning curve. I, I have a talk I give called 15 Years to Be an Overnight Success. And it really traces how I started in hesitant writing um, and tried everything, you know, and sent, and sent off stuff and came back rejected. And, it, and, and I had quite a lot of success on television, but eventually I wrote Glide Time, mm. which took the country by storm and it changed my life. Mm. That theme tune. It's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it just perfect? My old desk, yes. My old desk isn't picturesque, but it's happy as a desk be. We never say a word, but it's perfectly alright with me. For when my heart's on the floor, I just open the drawer of my favourite guest. Ross Jolly picked that. Did he? Who would, who's the artist? Nilsson, wasn't it? Ah, Harry. Just beautiful. Um, and so much great material comes out of mundanity. Yes. Well, <clears throat> you know, if you try to pitch that, it was, uh, oh, well, it's four days at a, in a public service office, you know, yawn, yawn, yawn. But the big thing then was, uh, by and large, audiences had never seen themselves on stage. And they arrived in this tiny theatre in Circa and saw the, the set, which had the radiators and the government life calendar on the wall and the desks close together. And they started laughing before the play had begun. Yeah. This was a world they knew. And in that era, everybody was a public servant almost. Mm. You know, if you're in the fire service or hospital or aviation, anything, we were all public servants. So, my God, this is us. Mm. And they recognized it and they just roared with laughter. Yeah. Uh, you wrote for Buck House as well. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, kind of formative in New Zealand. It's, it's got a special place in New Zealand oh, that, uh, history too, that, hasn't it? Well, it has... Um, Funny, I don't think about it that much. It was formative partly because John Clark was in it, yeah. along with Paul Holmes. I we suppose were, in retrospect we look and see those Well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's better than I remember. Yeah. We, um, so, yes, it, and um, they began to take over the script writing a bit. So Joe Masafi and I, with whom we... Uh, Did you get nudged out by John Clark? Well, I think we jumped ship gracefully, i put it that way. Um and, you know, I mean, what did John Clark know about this? Exactly. <laughs> just, hopeless. A, just a genius. Absolutely uh, hopeless. Yes. Yeah. Ring, ring. Oh, that'll be the phone. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's not a bad line I when know, you think about it, funny. is it? Yes, when you dissect right. it, it's yes. funny as all hell. And Pukimanu. Pukimanu, I did one episode, yes. Now, yeah. that, that was formative. People really caught on to that. They liked that. Again, a world they knew. Yeah. Now, the writing uh, process... It was a time of, you know, bristling regulation. If you did something a little off, there was institutional outrage. Especially if you grew a beard. Seriously. In 1958, 
when I came out here, there was a, a this was on an immigrant ship, and a guy had a beard. And the immigration officer said to him, did you have that beard when you were interviewed to come out here? And he said, no. He said, no, if you had, you wouldn't be on this ship. Shave it off. And he had to. And there was a guy who worked at the government printing office who had a beard. And he, it was in the paper how people were truly shocked. So that's just how, you know, that's one instance. You, We were very, um, we were so similar, monocultural really, yeah. in, in every aspect. Like being in Dad's army. <laughs> <laughs> well, the big thing, okay, let me give you a praise. When I came out here, I discovered there was no class system to speak of. Yeah. And so I felt completely free. It, yeah. the different, I suddenly thought, I can do any, I can be anything. I could be the prime minister if I decided mm. to do that. Mm. Um, ludicrous though it was, but that sense of freedom. And that's, it was a big step in my having a go at writing. Yeah. It's amazing how that class system pervades. Yes. It's since 1066. <laughs> it's more or less. Yeah, that's where it started. Funny French surnames <laughs> hanging around the place. All well, right. Let's talk about the plays that really made it. Middle-aged spread. That did marvellous, marvellously yes, overseas. It did. You had a it long was... run in London. In London. You must have been proud because your parents having, you know, they w- went, wandered up Shaftesbury did. more than once of a, of a year. Mm-hmm. Well, it was significant for me, of course. It set me up financially. But on a wider s- scale, it meant that in living in New Zealand, it was, geography didn't matter anymore. The fact that I could put a, a script into an envelope, or in fact I gave it to somebody, and it was taken over there, and it was put on in the West End, people thought, "My God, you know, it doesn't." You know, and as a friend said, you know, uh, scripts are being dragged out of desk drawers all over the country, and the, and the Olivetti's began slamming away, and scripts just poured out. Mm. And it was a movie. Yes, I think made for fifty thousand dollars. John Barnett, a, br- a brilliant movie. Um, and when the credits roll, go on. Are you on it? Yes. As a writer. Um, but I yes, I'm. I think from the screen, from the play by. From the play by. And I, I wish I'd done more. It, I, I think I could have done the adaptation, but I was busy with another play, and I foolishly turned down that chance. So I've never had a screen credit, which I now realise could have, would have been very important. I'm not. I'm. Would have opened some doors. It was my decision. A wrong one. Mm. I mentioned Dad's Army. We're kind of getting away from theatre, but let's stuff it. You've written for TV, and it's a it's a yeah. tricky. It's a I and I think it's a it's a discipline. It's a beautiful discipline. Mm. Writers you admire. Well, since you mentioned TV, uh, <clears throat> and we watched television a lot, Galton and Simpson were my heroes. They they wrote, of course, um, Hancock mm-hmm. and Steptoe and Son, oh. and. That's the sort of humour I've always loved because it's incredibly funny and you're almost crying. It's that mixture between funny and sad. And I, I always love that humour and I love writing it too. So that was, you know, they, they were very formative. On the stage, Alan Akebourne, very similar really, but uh, incredibly difficult, um, ambitious yeah. construction. He, he would have two houses, t- two in- interiors on the stage at the same time. A two-part stage with different sorts of wallpaper. Huh? You've got two families living together. It takes you ages that you suddenly, oh my God, yes, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I loved his work. Wow. I actually think in the sitcom, 
um, if you just scratch the surface, there's, there's depth yes. to a lot of that writing. There should be, yes. Yeah, there should be. You're right. And I can't stand it with all these wonderful, you know, quiz show, QR, and I, all these comic panel panels of comics, and they howl with laughter at each other's jokes, and it so annoys me. The f- if it's funny, you, nobody, they, you know, it's it's our job at home to laugh. Yeah, they're just sort of being sycophantic towards each other, mm. and takes up a lot of airtime as well. Yeah, I don't know why I threw that in, but I I just find it. Oh, it's lovely finding out <laughs> mild grievances <laughs> of, of the first world order. Yeah, um, what's happened to the radio play? They've run out of money. There's no money for them. They don't. I don't. They hardly do any. I'm not sure if they do. I've, I've stopped. I mean, radio served me very well. Indeed, I've had a huge amount of stuff on radio, often stage plays adapted, but uh, also uh, one-off radio plays. Uh, it's a wonderful medium for Isn't writing to just... listen to. But, I mean, this is what, you know, the, the money's gone down over the years. That is, it hasn't been increased. So there is no money for radio drama. It's, it's a huge shame. Mm. Oh, yes, yeah, Spin Doctors. Yeah. Okay, this is almost immediate reaction to current events yes. on television, right? Yes. That's a pressure cooker environment, isn't it? Oh, it was fantastic. It was. How um, long did you have to write a script? Well, we met on we Tom Scott, um, James Griffin, and oh. and I, and and a whole panel of um, journalists and so on. And we talked. So Friday, we decided what the topics would be. Then we allocated the script between three writers. Saturday we wrote them, and they, and James on Sunday, and we will meet, and we'd fight tooth and nail as to which bits of the script survived and which didn't. And it went on air, I think, on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And the, the first week, it was we had a um, whole lot about the Auckland mayoralty, which had, had taken place on Saturday, and the result came out Saturday night. And viewers were staggered to find out on Tuesday night we were already writing. It was already on air, mm-hmm. and it was it was a great mix, a great cast. It was a joy to write, exhausting. And then, unfortunately, t- um, Tony Holden um, gave. I think worked for TV and said there was some clash of interest. We couldn't do it anymore. But it was a shame because it was people loved it because it w- it was funny and it was so satirical and so topical. Why don't we do it now? Oh. I mean, the last few years, there's so much. Opportunity for satire, yeah. I mean sketches, yeah. doesn't happen. Actually, satire has really been diluted. If well, I think it's the rise it's of this almost dried up. Well, the stand-up comic has replaced the sketch. Oh yeah, and um, nothing wrong with stand-up comedy, but I, it's a shame they've thrown out the sketch material. Yeah. Oh, I should mention somebody who's doing it, and it's occasionally stop the car funny. Uh, Paul Cassily, who's actually features on this program from time to time, so that's just full disclosure. I'm not sucking up. I think he's great. Uh, Does uh, Go Ahead Caller on national radio, which is, you know, a a, a piss take on political things. And you have to say Thomas Sainsbury Uh when he does Paula Bennett, or Paula Benefit, as she's come to me now. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, during the run-up to the election, that was just... Yeah. Gut-achingly funny. Yeah. And there are some really clever people online. Um, the kid on the spin-off that I can't pr- pronounce his surname. It sounds Balkan, but you know <coughs> what I mean. Okay. Modern playwriting. There seems to be 
uh, almost a demand, an expectation that you're going to break that third wall, you're going to confuse people about what's acting and what's mm -hmm. not, that sort of thing. Do well, people do that too much? It, it, when well, it's done well, it's brilliant. Well, like all this, if you, if you do it well, you, it's whatever. In a way, as elsewhere in New Zealand, playwriting has followed the same path as cricket. We've gone from the five-day five test to the 2020. That's a very rough summary um, and possibly unfair, but in Victorian times, I think acts, plays were five acts and they had wonderful scenery. So we, people don't want to spend that much time. And by and large, people prefer the shorter play. But a short play, if it's... it's it lacks the structure. I say I'm a fanatic about structure. You can get away with more yeah. on a short play. Um, but, you know, just we have to look at the figures and see what the public likes. Yeah. Work you're most proud of? Oh. Um, well, Middle Age Spread, because it, was, it had a very complicated structure, and I nearly gave up several times writing on that. But um, a play called By Degrees, which was about four middle-aged women who decided to take up university. And this is not a well-made play um, because all they do is talk to the audience directly. They don't talk to each other at all. And they just simply start, say why they wanted their circumstances and why they decided to go. And then you follow their study over four or five years until they finish or don't. The and way of doing that, that uh, mechanism was yes. that an aha eureka moment when you're thinking of how well, to put um, the play on? Oh, I'll get them just to speak to the audience directly. I, I, I think so, but the director didn't like the idea at all and wanted me didn't and I, I had to ins had to insist that that's the way it was done, and it was a risk. It would but be um, a big difference if you didn't, wouldn't it? It's kind of key to the affair. I didn't want them chatting over coffee and all this. That was you know would have been so, and as you sitting there, you see the audience sort of sitting you know, close and close towards the stage and getting engrossed. And if you read it, you might not think much of it. In fact, one, Peter Calder, whose name, of course, I've completely forgotten, um, said I decided to have a night off. Well, it was one of the hardest things I wrote. I did a huge amount of research. I've had more letters about that than anything else, all from women, some of whom said, A, you know a woman's you know, way she works very well. And um, a few said, thanks to that play, I've now decided to go to university. So that really did change things. Wow. But it wasn't preachy. It was just telling uh, a story. Yeah. Is there any work that you've done that hasn't been put on as a, a, a play? There's a work that's been done. I, I sort of wish it hadn't, <laughs> been, <laughs> the other way hadn't been put on. And it was um, not entirely my fault why it didn't work, but it was a one-man play about golf. And all the research said nobody's interested. And even when I asked audiences to put up their hands who would see a play about golf, I think one hand went up. So all the evidence was, uh, was nobody's going to be interested. But did I take any notice? I was in love with the idea. Well, and a one-man play is very difficult to do, and it was done at Palmerston North, and the actor on the opening night didn't know his lines. Hadn't spent enough time on it. Rather uh, essential to procedure. Well, it didn't help. So they cancelled the next four nights saying the actor had flu. Oh, come on, how bad was this? Oh, the prompt had a huge part. I mean, the prompt should have taken a bow at the end of the evening, really. Thank God I wasn't actually there, but I saw it a few days later and it was almost as bad. Anyhow, but the positive thing, and I've, I've said this to the actor several times, it is a reminder how hard it is. 
aren't we all expect on opening night all the actors to have their lines and everything in place? Well, most uh, of them would be good. Most of them, it is. That's right. But the stress and the and and I've had another one person play on called the book club recently, which is going to Waiheke soon and so on. A one woman play, and again, and I don't think she'll mind too much. She wasn't on top of it on the opening night, and there were bits of script all over the bookshelves and behind the sofa and things like that. And now my point is, the audience didn't really mind. Okay. They said, oh, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's such hard work. You know, how do they learn all those? <laughs> all that, you know, people in the theatre were going, tut, tut, you know. But the audience loved her. And in the end, that was more important than anything else. And, uh, you know, after a while she... But it, it shows you how terrifying it is and stressful to go on stage by yourself and there's no other actors on stage who are going to get you out of the hole you might get into. Yeah. So it's a reminder. Well, that is theatre, isn't it? That, yes. that is a little bit of the so I, free song um, of the affair. You know, these things happen, but mm. let's not forget, folks, that on you know to get a show up and running by 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock certain time is a huge amount of work by a huge amount of people, but many of whom, many of whom, yeah, many of whom aren't even on stage. They're backstage, right. but it is the job. It is the job to learn the lines. It yes. is. Yes. And, and the people that are there, they've they've had to pay. <laughs> I know. But I'm saying it didn't necessarily um, okay. affect their, their their pleasure of the evening. What oh. was the name of this golf thing where he shanked it onto the next green? It was called Golf: A Love Story, and he the character is. He has to break a hundred this particular day because he's having a new replacement the next day. So this is his, you know, last chance really. Uh. And he plays with his regular mates who are all, all gold card holders, of course. And he tells a lot of golf stories and you know golf jokes. So it was quite entertaining. And then you follow follow it round until you see how eventually he. Well, you never know. Does he break a hundred or doesn't he? A real salute to theatre. There's a thing that you do. Takapuna Beach on Christmas Day in the 1930s. Bruce Mason's one man yes. play, The End of the Golden Weather. Yes. One of our most famous things. Yes. Isn't it? What do you do? Uh, well, when I moved to Takapuna and walked regularly on the beach, and I was, it is one of my favourite plays, and it was the first piece of New Zealand theatre I saw, I thought, oh, wow, they, we, you know, they, we can do it over here. Uh, and I thought, well, in this play, there is a scene set on Takapuna Beach on Christmas Day. And so why don't they do it? And after a while, I thought, oh, well, why don't I do it? The first year I did it, uh, I performed the, the scene in front of my family and four seagulls. But the next year, I got um, Stephen Lovett to do it. And we, I think we had a couple of hundred people. And now we get 500 people every Christmas Day. Mm. I wanted to establish a tradition, and it's become one. Nice. So people arrive early, and they bring their picnic and their, you know, their bo little bit of sparkling wine, and mm. they love it, and they hang around after it. It is a magical experience, and if people, if you, you know, it's people come from miles around to go to it. Maybe a touch like uh, what is it, July eighteenth in Dublin? Uh, yes, James Joyce? yes, that's right. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, fabulous. Um, there are some plays, into the Golden Weather being one, that have really informed us and have been part of our collective yes. culture. Foreskin's Lament. I was going to say, that's, like the, that. that's the other one. Uh, I'd like to add um, René's Wednesday to Come, uh -huh. set in the Depression. It, it disappoints me that people aren't reviving it more. Uh -huh. So I'm hoping next year, because Theatre Month is planned to go for five years, 
uh, people will have a look at our huge backlog of great plays yeah. and think, oh, well, we could do this. Yeah. Mervyn Thompson's plays. Oh, so yeah. So we have he a went lot. through a rough patch, didn't he, in he the did. old 1980s? He did. Tied to a tree he had and assaulted. Oh, well, I was going to say he had, he had several farewell tours, as I recall. The poor guy was, you know, said, I'm dying. This is the last time you'll see me. And he, he popped up again a few months later. I mean, <laughs> it became a joke. But, you know, I know that's cynical and so on. But, you know, I did tease him about that. He was a very funny man. He did a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful piece. And I went backstage and said, this is wonderful Mervyn and he was, his face was buried in his hands moaning how awful it had been you know and I said no no it's fantastic and I said about four times eventually his head looked up and said oh really <laughs> all right Roger Hall thank you so much for acquiescing to the face-to-face for a short interview you said yeah <laughs> <laughs> and in celebration of New Zealand theatre month the inaugural, I suppose, officially. Yes. Andy, please, folks, go on to the website, www.theatremonth.nz, and then you'll find the real slogan that, I, for some reason, I can't remember. And you've got most areas and people behind this. They're going to do stuff. Yes, there's a big geographical spread, yeah. and next year it'll be bigger and wider and better. You know, it's, it's terrific this year. Anyway, I'm amazed at how many people are running up the gangplank as we speak to get on board this ship, which is just about to sail. What's happened to street theatre? used to be quite a lot of it hanging about. Yes, I don't know. Well, we've addressed so many things to do with theatre, haven't we? I think so. Yeah. Roger Hall, a real pleasure to have you here. All the best. Good luck for this and everything else. And hats off for the Bruce... Mason salute every year. Oh, so, and by the way, he's the first person, he's the first event in the month on the 1st of September at the Bruce Mason Centre, appropriately enough, and there's an hour tribute to him with scenes from his plays oh. and talks about him and so on. So, okay. free, free. Lovely. Roger Hall, thank you. Pleasure. And what do I see but a picture of me working at my good old You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Immediately after news, sport and weather at the top of the hour, which isn't far away, a shipwreck tale which went overboard. It is the story of the Sydney Cove. It is a harrowing tale of survival, mostly walking, not sailing, actually. Do tune in and avail yourself of the ever-replenished Shipwreck Tales archive on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage.